Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Formula One Grid Talk. This is episode 186. We've removed all piercings and donned the fireproof undies. It must be time for another fireside chat. My name is Tom Horrocks, and today we on the show we have F1 broadcaster, F1 writer, and self-proclaimed loudmouth, Michael Laminato. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? Have you recovered from your Melbourne Grand Prix weekend yet? Hello, mate. Uh, pleasure to be here. I feel like I am in the process of recovery. I can say that much. It's been a very big week here in Melbourne after three years of no racing, uh, but what a pleasure it was to be back. Fantastic. I cannot wait to, to get into that and hearing all about that shortly. But before we start, I'd just like to remind everyone that we do previews and reviews of every race weekend live on YouTube and on all major audio platforms too. Just search for F1 Chronicle or go to f1chronicle.com to find out more. Make sure you subscribe and click the bell on YouTube to know when we're live. And please consider giving us a five-star review if you think we deserve it. We may even give you a shout-out on the show. So that's the, the, the housekeeping done. We'll get into the, the show now. So listeners who don't know who you are, just to get to know you a little bit better, I'd love to start by quoting Mark Webber's Aussie Grip book. How the F does a guy from Melbourne get into <laughs> Formula One? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, an un, it's always an unlikely story, not mine by any uh, exaggerated stretch, but I think anyone who gets into Formula One from Australia uh, overcomes a few more hurdles, I think it's fair to say, than, than people from other parts of the world. To be honest, it was all pretty much by accident. You know, I, of course, started as a Formula One fan. It helps that that Formula One was racing in Melbourne, of course, for most of my life. I went to an early race. I'm afraid I can never remember which one, but I got out of school for a day. My mum took me. My dad had a grandstand ticket. was working on Friday, so we went on, on Friday. And uh, my earliest memories were absolutely hating Formula One, in fact. I couldn't stand it. It was too loud. I didn't understand the attraction of sitting at a grandstand and watching the cars whiz by. Somewhere between that, though, I'm going to guess that must have been early 2000s, late 90s at a, at a oh, pinch. Okay. I properly developed, though, a passion uh, roughly around uh, coinciding with 2008. Of course, a, a classic season with an incredible ending, Felipe mm -hmm. Massa tragically for the Italian Laminato household, missing out for Ferrari. <laughs> uh, no one cares about the constructor standings, of course. Uh, Lewis <laughs> Hamilton winning. Uh, and then from there on, it sort of just fell into it. You know, I studied journalism at, at university, got into community radio with a friend of mine, Rob James, of course, I do the Boxer Neutrals podcast with, still going strong after, uh, I think it's 12 years now. Don't quote wow. me on that. Someone will look it up. And then progressively from there, continued to write or started writing, I suppose, Formula One. And slowly but surely, it went from sort of like, a, I guess you would describe it as a side hustle, maybe, or a hobby, really, uh, into something that that eventually became something of a profession. And now here we are. And I'll admit, of course, the last two years, attended very few races thanks to the pandemic, <laughs> but hoping, of course, to get absolutely back on the scene again, because because uh, that's where I left off in 2019, and what a time to be involved in Formula One. Yeah, abs absolutely. It's uh, it, The last few years have been particularly challenging in, in a lot of ways, uh, so it's great mm. that, yeah. um, I mean, it's been a bit of a bit of a, a purple patch for podcasts and people starting. I know I myself started just mm. before the, the pandemic, and I know there's been sh ones shooting up everywhere. It seems a great way just to kind of get that love for formula one out there and and so your your day-to-day -day job then so you're working in formula one or is so is this the full-time job for you yeah it's it's thankfully just about there now which is good of Great. course always picking up random bits and pieces here and there but yeah this year particularly considering i'm hoping to get back to quite a few races this season uh yeah between a whole bunch of different freelance gigs you, you hope you can certainly make a living at least pay the bills and then whatever happens on top of that it's a bit of a bonus Fantastic. So you, you work on the broadcasting for the OzGP uh, podcast as well, is that correct? 
Or is that yeah, still- that's right. So that's weirdly enough something that started during the pandemic. Very rare. Yeah. Most people will be aware to get work during the start of the pandemic, but uh, it popped up and we converted that into a live show, in fact, doing Australian Grand Prix. So really getting into the thick of the the great atmosphere that was in Melbourne this weekend. So does that run all year round then, or is it just, just around the time of the Grand Prix? Yeah, so this podcast is year round, which was which is really good. It's almost like a, you can almost think of it like a light version of the uh, Beyond the Grid podcast. The shorter, lightweight version. We talk a little bit more about the racing, so it's not purely about interviews. And so we talk. We we, we do get an interview every week, I should say, but review the race a little bit. Uh, sometimes interviews are a bit more topical rather than feature length. And we do a bit of MotoGP as well because the Grand Prix Corp down here runs both Formula One and and bikes. So a little bit of uh, diverse flavors, I guess you could say. Excellent, excellent. That sounds really interesting. So the the, the box of mutuals podcast you've mentioned you mentioned earlier. So you started that twelve years ago. I, I wasn't even aware that podcasts were a thing back then. How on earth did you, <laughs> that even get started? Yeah, it must have been. I we almost shouldn't have put a number. It must be about twelve years. We've passed ten. I know that much. I know we've passed ten years. So it must be close to twelve. It started weirdly enough. So I'd been involved in a community radio station, student youth network down in Melbourne when I was in my first two years of university, and there's a whole bunch of different people there. You know, a lot of people focused on, on music. Certainly, it's where a lot of the young music broadcasters would start in, in Melbourne and Australia, and a whole bunch of different people, of course, trying to cut their way through the media. But I, I encountered Rob James, who's now, of course, a good friend of mine and one of the few people at the time who was also interested in motorsport in Formula One in particular and this was shortly after it must have been 2010 I think we must have bumped into each other maybe 2011 and of course we, we bonded over this interest of Formula One weirdly enough he was going to my same university as well he was a year ahead of me I think it was and so we ended up spending quite a bit of time together and naturally enough with access to a community radio station we decided well this seems relatively unique, I guess, among the other ideas being pitched at community radio by a bunch of 20-somethings, a motorsport program. And it all started from there. We got Peter McGinley, who's the third member of the show occasionally, involved in those early days as well. And at the time, in fact, you mentioned, you know, that there didn't seem to be so many F1 podcasts there. We were certainly the only one in Australia at the time, bar one in New Zealand that started, I think, roughly at the same time. But we were certainly pretty early in that podcast space. I would never say that we were the first uh, around the world because it's probably not true, to be fair. But we were relatively early on. And so as a result, we've sort of got this like a long-standing or core following who are part of the community now. You know, we chat a lot online and all that kind of thing. And it's just kind of grown from there. We ended up at the ABC here in Australia for a little while and then the ABC grandstand as it was known there sort of closed mm. down changed direction and now we're independent again and still going strong fantastic yeah I mean I only discovered it last week I've uh, I've listened to two of your episodes <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm very much late to the party on this one but uh, I've seen it uh, loaded a few times but there's so many podcasts out there just never kind of uh, found are, the need to click on it but uh, I, I had a, I had a click a couple of weeks back and I saw your name attached to it and obviously we were already chatting anyway about coming on this so I thought I'd give it a crack and I fully recommend it it's uh, it's hilarious it's just great fun <laughs> and I, I liken it to the other podcast that, that I do except we're 10 years behind you uh, the other podcast <laughs> <laughs> that I run. It's very, very much just two people having a laugh and uh, uh, very much the the other host hasn't watched the Grand Prix as well, which is something that I end up uh, <laughs> encountering quite a lot on my other podcast as well. So that's, uh, it's just, it's good fun, good fun. But uh, you're, the other one, the, the reason that I was first introduced to your uh, dulcet tones was the F1 Strategy Report, which is another podcast that you uh, you run. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and how that got started? 
Yeah, it's a little bit more of a, a different story. This was originally hosted by the guy who kind of runs it now. He's the producer. His name is Nathan Harper, and he hosted this in the early days. I'm afraid I actually don't remember when I started hosting this one. It's been a little while now, but I was originally a guest on it. He was looking to move it on a little bit and, and sort of introduce a, a new presenter and try and get someone who's a little bit better connected, I suppose, in the F1 world. And came across me as obviously doing box neutrals at the time I'd studied after journalism radio so that's sort of how I became a little bit more podcast oriented and I've always had an interest in well once I got into Formula One I suppose it's probably fair to say after I got over my apparent uh, youthful loathing of it the the technical side of it of course the strategic side of it because that's that is sort of what makes Formula One a little bit different from a lot of other motorsports is the Grand Prix distance there are of course endurance racing and other similar lengths but in terms of those top tier motorsports it's, it's a little bit unusual I suppose and so to express that part of the sport and and part of what I've always been interested in in terms of the work I do with Formula One is really just explaining it to people. I don't profess to be the expert or anything like that, but there are a lot of avenues of it. Uh, and I think we're certainly learning this as, as more people, let's say, from the drive to survive generation join Formula One. There are a lot of aspects that are not obvious or are kind of difficult to understand or have a weird uh, history backstory to it that you sort of need to, to know before you can fully understand what's going on. And I always just enjoy telling people about it. Up until recently, not a lot of people enjoyed listening to it. If I was down at the pub or talking to friends, most people didn't care about Formula One. But that part has thankfully changed. Uh, but that's something I've been doing for a little while now with the Strategy Report. Yeah, it's, it's always nice to listen to an, an informed view on it as well and uh, and really kind of delving into the, the detail and the minutiae of what's of what's happened in the race because a lot of that stuff can can just go by. So I'm sure we'll, we'll get on to with the Australian Grand Prix and how things how things developed in there. You know, it's such a wide range of opinions. People who watch the race mm. who don't fully understand how the, the strategy works and uh, and they say, oh God, what a, what a dull race that was. And and I, although yeah. I don't think it was the most exciting race in the world because there was no real jeopardy up front, there was still some some great tactics coming through and and just the, the you know the, the whole thing with Albon on on the uh, single set of tyres mm. and everything like that, just just really really fun race and and good to kind of get into the strategy because there was just so many options available to you and and as you say with with a distance so long you know 305 kilometers or whatever it is now and uh and yeah it's just just a lot of time to actually just just change things and 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 try things out but uh yeah no that's um uh, really good. So I would actually like to talk about uh, Formula One as well as a whole and, and your thoughts on the new Formula One and this this new era. I think you've uh, already alluded to your Italian heritage. So does that mean are you enjoying <laughs> swapping the dominance of silver to the dominance of red or are you very much this is bad for Formula One? <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm always pleased to see change at the top or more. I guess Jeopardy the top of those you touched on there, the season really when you boil it down, while Red Bull's been close-ish, I think on balance Ferrari's been quicker. I think it's it is always good when Ferrari's doing well. I'm not necessarily saying dominating, but I think Ferrari is so popular around the world and we're in this great moment for Formula One for fans as it is, but it always does help when they're in contention. And as anyone who follows me on Twitter, not that I'm any prolific Twitter uh, tweeter will know, the Italian anthem is just great. You know, it's great to hear it <laughs> several times a race if possible. Obviously, we'll get to hear it at least <laughs> once in the next round and maybe even more than that. So there's nothing wrong, of course, with hearing at the end of a race. But it is great to see Ferrari back, not only for that reason, though, but because, of course, Charles Leclerc, it's great to see him in a competitive car. You know, there was a while there where we might have been worried that it wasn't going to happen because he was signed to Ferrari in a long-term deal and they are sometimes a bit of a basket case. But it looks like... They've kind of sorted that out based on what we've seen so far. And that can only be good because the more young guys we get 
coming through. And okay, Charles Leclerc is not a new winner, but Carlos Sainz may well be later on the year. New winners, new title contenders is really the lifeblood of any motorsport or any sport, in fact. So that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I for one grew up in the in the generation of of Mansell Mania, and uh, I was kind of bre- bred to hate Ferrari. But uh, the, uh, <laughs> the certainly the drivers that are on board there, certainly for Carlos Sainz, big fan of Carlos Sainz, and uh, I would love, yeah. I would have absolutely no problem seeing a Ferrari world champion if it was Carlos Sainz driving. And uh, I've no major issues with with Leclerc myself, but Sainz is definitely my my favoured one of the two. But uh, yeah, br- brought up to be a, a McLaren fan and a, and a Williams fan, so that's kind of uh, <laughs> yes, where you can't you can't. Be both you can't be all of them <laughs> no exactly so yeah i mean it's, yeah. it's fine it's fine at the moment and, and recently because neither of them fighting for wins but it was difficult in that kind of early 2000 era when yeah. you had uh williams and mclaren fighting with ferrari for the championship so that that was particularly difficult for me <laughs> but uh yeah so do you think the, the the new f1 the changes have worked is it just what the doctor ordered or is it, is it a sticking plaster i think it's getting there you know we we have a Fairly for a small sample size, we have to admit. Only three races in, only three types of tracks, and they are all relatively different. But you know, we haven't seen some of the extremes like uh, Monaco or Monza, for example, the two of the more extreme ends of it, and even just generally more circuits. And of course, the longer the season goes on, the more the teams understand the cars, the more we really understand how well they work in the sense of whether they can follow one another more closely and whether the racing is better. But that said, after three rounds, I, I think that we should be optimistic. You know, Bahrain almost seemed like a little bit of a dampener, but it was always the first race, and that's always a little bit unusual. But the racing in Saudi Arabia and even in Australia, which I know was not mo- the most exciting race, but certainly had some really good signs of what we're looking for, really suggested that it's working. Because I, I, I'm worried that, you know, we were so optimistic about these changes before this year thinking that there was just going to be a lot of overtaking. We're going to see virtually like a a new version of IndyCar where there'd be hundreds of passes a race. But that's never really been what Formula One is about. You know, the the quantity of overtaking, there's no crack on IndyCar either. I, I have no qualms about IndyCar. But the quantity does not necessarily equal quality. What we've seen, and I want to talk about in particular the, the last 10 laps or so of Saudi Arabia, is that the cars are just capable of following for much longer periods of time. You know, the, the real pain for Formula One over the last few years is you'd have a car They'd be able to overtake. They might have a subtle pace advantage. But once they're behind another car for maybe one lap, maybe two laps, they couldn't keep following. Verstappen harassed Leclerc for lap upon lap until he finally got past in Saudi Arabia. That's really the new rules working. And if we even look in Australia, where there was some overtaking, not heaps, but there was some, we saw a lot of the same thing. Even if we look at Daniel Ricciardo with Lando Norris, never got past, but was so close to him for so much of the race, something that wouldn't really have been possible uh, in the previous regulations. Even the first stint of the race, I remember thinking as I was looking at the gaps on the timing chart, that a lot of them were still within one second, which is normally like that magic marker where we think once you're beyond one second, not only you're not really on for an overtake, but that's usually because of that disturbed air. So while we haven't, well, I mean, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia have been good, and I think Australia has not been bad either. I think we've seen, despite the fact that we haven't had wall-to-wall overtaking or anything like that, that the rules are working. I like the idea as well with Australia that uh, the track has changed a little bit to try and, and move towards the cars. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more tracks do that because it has to be a whole a holistic approach, doesn't it? So mm. I am optimistic to come back to your question. I am optimistic that the changes are working. Excellent. So the, uh, the the fourth DRS zone that Fernando Alonso had removed for competitive reasons <laughs> and certainly not for safety reasons. Uh, do you reckon that would have made a, made a difference to certainly to, to the strategy and, and how things panned out in the race or was it very much a, a not really going to make a lot of difference? 
Oh, well, I mean, it, it is all a bit hypothetical, but I suspect that having all four DRS zones might have broken the back of some of the DRS trains we did say uh, we did see, particularly the one led by Lance Stroll, for example, late in the race, would have been detrimental to Alex Albon, I suppose, because if people gotten past mm. Stroll, he may not have finished tenth. So, I guess you can see it in two directions. Uh, in one sense, maybe it wouldn't have made too much of a difference. In another, we might have seen a few more overtakes, might have seen a little bit more jeopardy into Turn Nine as well. Although we did see still some some drivers able to overtake just with the slipstream alone. I wouldn't be surprised if next year we got it back just because there weren't enough drivers saying it was unsafe. Enough, I guess, for it to be changed. Fernando Alonso is a very persuasive man, clearly. <laughs> but with the natural development of these cars, there'll be more downforce on them next year, which means that it, it might sort of swing back in the favour of, of just being allowed to have it because even with the DRS open, it'll probably be safe enough. And that'll be really interesting to see because, you know, we normally give cars several races before we decide whether or not they're competitive. I think that the same should go for track changes, really. In Albert Park's case, understanding exactly how those changes work will take several races. So hopefully next year we'll see that come back in and we'll be able to decide with a little bit more information. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely going to be a bit trial and error, certainly for this year. People mm. saying about just get rid of the DRS now, we don't need it anymore, and I'm not completely convinced yeah. on that. I, I don't want to see races where they're they're just they're you know trying to break on a straight so they don't get to the DRS line first. I, I don't want to see that mm. as kind of a modus operandi for Formula One, but uh, it's it's fine for a little little bit of strategic element thrown in occasionally. But uh, yeah, if it's a point where you don't want to be ahead, then that's something fundamentally wrong. I, th I think you need to kind of you need to do something about that, make it less powerful, less. But uh, like you say, the whole coming coming back at the drivers that's something that I don't remember seeing as a regular thing in Formula One. Since since, since like the 80s, since before I was watching mm -hmm. Formula One, going back and re-watching races where, you know, people would overtake and then get re-overtaken again. And it's all very much stint-based now and has been for a very long time. And it's, it's it would be nice to see that kind of thing come back. And uh, we haven't, say we haven't seen that for a very long time. So that's that's definitely uh, wetting my whistle. So I, I'm <laughs> <laughs> hoping we get, get a bit more of that. So what was the atmosphere like in, in Melbourne? Obviously, you're, you're on the ground. Uh, how did that differ from 2019? And I, I went myself to the Melbourne Grand Prix in 2012, and it was definitely the, yeah. the, the best Grand Prix I've been to. And I've been to quite a few, only three different locations, but been to, been to quite a few individual races. But that one was was great even then in 2012 so yeah how's how has it differed since uh, since we've come back the atmosphere was uh to use a, what i believe is australian phrase completely off chops i was told that no one understood that when i said it don't know <laughs> no. if that's true but there you go now there well there you go you got the free australianism right there it was enormous i think friday's crowd from memory i've never been very good with numbers but was bigger than some race day attendances. It was huge. Thursday even. I mean, we have Thursday at the Australian Grand Prix because we have quite a few support categories that get started on that day. We also have driver interviews and that kind of thing. And, and even that was quite large. A lot of people who should have been at work were not. They were at the circuit and good on them, I say. Good for yeah. them. The atmosphere, but it, but it was enormous. And there, there are several different reasons, I think. Obviously, F1 is globally having a little bit of a moment, I think it's fair to say, in terms of popularity. We're seeing circuits all over the world sell out really well in advance. We already know Austin, for example, was sold out, sold out this year as well. Miami sold out in something like a, a day or two. More people signed up for pre-sale in Miami than were able to buy tickets. That, to my mind, is not how pre-sales are meant to work, but that's how they ran it there. Hmm. Uh, and here as well, we hit the, the sellout maximum on Saturday and Sunday, which has never happened at Albert Park before. So already we knew we were onto something big and the biggest attendance ever in Melbourne. And you could really feel it because... 
it's difficult to describe. Melbourne, as you would know, of course, coming in 2012, doesn't necessarily have the same audience as every other race. There are some other races that will follow it. I wouldn't be surprised, for example, I've been to Austin a few times, not so different. You have a hardcore group of fans. I think it's fair to say there have always been motorsport fans in Australia. There's a, there's a longstanding motorsport heritage, but the people who run the Australian Grand Prix really try to set it up as a, as a kind of festival atmosphere. There's a lot going on off the track, a lot of support series, uh, music concerts in the evenings. And the idea of that is to attract people maybe heard about Formula One. And there are a lot more of them these days, obviously, thanks to things like Drive to Survive, or people who may just be, for example, interested in the music act, but because the tickets are, are reasonably priced enough, they'll go along anyway and see what it's about. And so you had this really different kind of atmosphere of people who, yes, loved literal car racing on the track, but people who were also there because they just really liked the personalities involved in Formula One who just really wanted to go. This is certainly the case in Melbourne who've been locked down for so much in the last few years. You really wanted to just go to an event to see other people in the public and see people face-to-face rather than on a screen. You just had this really energetic vibe about Melbourne this year. And it's always been a little bit like that, but it was just at another level this year, I think as well. Not only that did we miss events in Melbourne because of those lockdowns, but we did miss Formula One because it's always been popular enough. It's it's waxed and waned over the years as Formula One, I guess, has waxed and waned in its competitiveness. But coming off the back of, yes, things like Drive to Survive, off the incredibly competitive season we had last year, off the near miss, where we know we're meant to have a Grand Prix last year as well, but it got called off a couple of months beforehand. Mm. All of those things built into just people ready to embrace it again. And so we just had this great crowd of people who all really wanted to be there, which sounds silly, of course, because if you're going to pay for a ticket, you want to be there. But it's difficult to describe how much so people really enthusiastic to be there. It was really, it was just really heartening to see. Mm. I like that a little bit to uh, to the IndyCar audience. I, I'm an IndyCar follower as well, mm. and uh, I remember there was um, I heard an interview uh, on on so one of the uh, online podcasts they do, and and they were interviewing people in the crowd at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and uh, and and the comments were, "Oh, uh, how long have you been coming to the Indy 500?" And that this is my 30th year, and he goes, "And what do you think of the cars? <laughs> I ain't never seen a car yet." <laughs> so they come to the Indy 500 every year, and they just never leave the infield. They just have barbecues and get drunk <laughs> yeah yes it's all atmosphere isn't it and it smells good <laughs> yeah definitely definitely and, and yeah back to back to melbourne from uh from the other side of the world but uh yeah i remember from from when i went having the four-day event and the uh have events all on the thursday and demonstration runs for formula one and v8 supercars and and all kinds of stuff going on there it really is just uh definitely the best value race that i've been to uh, as well because uh even despite the uh was it the 40-hour journey for only going there for oh, a week imagine. as well. Going to Australia yeah. for a week was just crazy. But, uh, but yes. yeah, no, so uh, I'll uh, thank you to the Australian Tourist Board for my bung for, uh, for, <laughs> for liking that. But uh, no, I fully recommend anyone to go to the, the Grand Prix in Melbourne. Absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, so uh, sort of back onto Formula One then. The, uh, the, the rules as they are now, we've obviously got a completely new team running Formula One and completely new race direction team. You know, whether you believe uh, Mr. Massey was wrong in what he did or, or not, we you know, he is has been removed from his job and we have uh, a whole new team. How, how do you think that the, the rules of Formula One and the track limits uh, and the stewarding is, is going now? What's your opinion on, the, on how that's going? 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because you can't really separate it from, I guess, the change of leadership really in race direction, can you? And and that is a little bit still of an elephant in a room, weirdly enough, much though I think we need to move on from the events of yes. Abu Dhabi. It's it's uh, still, in a sense, hanging over us, only in that way that, of course, the race direction has changed and everyone's still adjusting to it. I thought it was really interesting this weekend to hear that Christian Horner said that he, in fact, hadn't even met the either of the race directors, I think he said, or at least oh, really? the one who was in control in Australia this weekend. You look, track limits, I think let's just let's dispose of track limits first. I think no one will be too disappointed to hear there's a hard and fast rule now because I think everyone was sick of turning up to track by track and trying to guess which corners would be enforced and which wouldn't be. And so far, I mean, we've been to three tracks that don't have too many track limit problems anyway, but we haven't seen too many problems with that. But we'll get to tracks like uh, Austria is usually one, isn't it? And there are a couple coming up, of course, we know that are notorious for track limits and we'll see how that goes there. But in terms of some of the the other matters, for example, the the popular matter of the week has been fireproof underwear and jewellery. Uh, I mean, in a sense, it's interesting. It, realistically, I think it's something that uh, I think just sort of caught our peak because we got some interesting answers from some of the drivers about it. But uh, there's definitely been a, I guess, a little bit of a broom run through the rules, for better or for worse. I, I think that the way Michael Massey approached the rules was very similar, in fact, to the way that Charlie Whiting approached the rules, which was much more collegiate I suppose you know you got to know the teams you knew the drivers you knew which rules could be bent because it was easier and didn't pose a risk for example much though some of these rules of a safety and which ones were worth really taking teams to task over not necessarily a wrong or right answer either with this one it's clearly the decision though of the new race direction team that they want to be uh, coming down hard on some of these matters. I didn't personally know that uh, drivers didn't wear fireproof underwear. I feel like that's just sort of the way it was meant to be. So I can kind of understand that one. But that does seem to be the way they're approaching it, right? Like there's no more flexibility to some of these rules. And as much as some team principals seem pretty happy to have moved on from the Michael Massey era, whether or not you agree with it, I can't help but wonder whether some of these things will come to a head because there's always a lot of agreement at the start of the season, isn't it, where there's nothing really on the line mm. yet. Everyone's easing their way into the year, but all of a sudden when one of these very strict decisions that wouldn't have been upheld in a previous year goes against you and you lose points and you might be in the title frame, suddenly things uh, might be a little bit more difficult. But uh, I guess that's just part of sport at the end of the day, isn't it? It's something that all sports deal with, these change of leadership uh, mm. situations, and I'll be interested to see how it pans out. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely fully behind the whole track limits thing. That just really frustrates me. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's annoying. And I, I know from going to Silverstone a few years back when Jensen Button was still racing and he, he had his time deleted for track limits at Cops, absolutely mm. fine. But then we saw somebody else go off and then uh, they didn't get half their lap time deleted and they went off at the same corner. I was just like, how's that the yeah, so yeah. it's just the, it's just the consistency for me, really. I just want to see the consistency. If 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 the rule is there, it's there, you know, and I want that, you know, mm -hmm. I want that enforced throughout the entire season at every race, regardless of circumstances, like the whole thing with football of, oh, well, that, if that was in the box, that was a penalty. No, if it's a foul, it's a foul, you know, it doesn't matter where it happens, yeah. it should be a foul. So that's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all all for that so uh yeah it's just really the, the consistency for me so what are you um most looking forward to for from the rest of the season now which race or well, I'm, battle or yeah battle? i mean i think like most people i'm interested to see where it's going to go because as much as well i mean i, I should say first of all after australia i was feeling look i was feeling great of course because it's australian grand prix but uh a little bit pessimistic about the championship picture i suppose because really when you look back at the results Ferrari has had the upper hand in all of them. Now, I know we, of course, no Max Verstappen won in Saudi Arabia, but it was a pretty close run thing. 
Ferrari should have had pole, but for Sergio Perez's lap of his life. And full credit to him, by the way, because it was an incredible lap. Mm. But for a guy who has never been that great in qualifying, for him to string that together was immense. But the Ferrari car, in an overall sense, just seems to be the better one. We don't know which one's necessarily quicker, but we know that it's better at most tracks, albeit on the evidence of only three circuits. But the Red Bull car seems way too finicky. And if it, that direction continues, considering Red Bull is also dealing with unreliability, well, you'd have to say Ferrari's looking pretty good. But I'm looking forward to seeing how that battle pans out because I do want a good fight, of course. I want to see how Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc go up against one another because while it was well, it was thrilling, really, wasn't it, to see Verstappen and Hamilton, for example, last season because two guys opposite ends of their careers, all the reasons we know that that fight was so good. Leclerc and Verstappen, theoretically, are our future, right? Like, that's the future of Formula One along with George Russell and whoever else might be able to break into there, whether it's Lando Norris or any number of the young guys who are trying to find themselves in, in competitive cars. So I'm really hoping we do see that and not forgetting, of course, Carlos Sainz. Now, there's a... There's a little bit of a, let's say, a down feeling about him after the first three races. He hasn't been able to break into the fight. He hasn't been on the pace of Charles Leclerc. Hmm. I'm really hoping that he just needs his first win and that unlocks it for him. I don't know. I mean, I also do think Charles Leclerc is probably of that real absolute top-tier talent. But all these questions I really want answers to because as we were sort of saying at the start, it's been a long time since Ferrari's been in contention, which means Leclerc and Science, obviously, Science, albeit coming from McLaren, have not been in contention. How they deal with that pressure, I mean, that's sort of the crux of Formula One, right? Like, you can be as good as you like in the midfield, but it's when you've got the title on the line that you really find out how good you are. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing that we've been we've having this chat for nearly half an hour now, and, we, and we've barely even mentioned Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton, and you know, yeah, they've, won, yes. they've won the last eight constructors championships, and we've not even spoken about them. How how do you feel their their season's going to go and, and and pan out for the remainder? I've got I got the feeling in Melbourne that they are adjusting to an expectation that they're not going to be in contention this year. You know, we all heard start of the year after injuries, the update package didn't seem to work the way they wanted that. It's just a matter of unlocking the pace that they know is in there and just sort of figuring out how the car works. The, the talk has sort of mellowed a little bit, a little bit more to just continuing to progress, figuring it out as they go. I think they will win races by the end of the year, but, you know, race by race, considering as we've just sort of talked about the Ferrari really seems on it. It's just getting further and further away from them. And it's a little bit misleading. You can look at the, the championship standings, both constructor and driver, and you can see George Russell, Mercedes there in second on their respective tables. But we know that's not really the true championship picture. That's more a reflection of Red Bull Racing's unreliability. I, I think they will get there, but I think it's going to take them too long to contend for the title because Ferrari... That car is so solid and we should be, I mean, their first upgrade package is going to be telling, that's it. If their first upgrade package is a bit of a flop, then maybe we've got game on. But there's not too much of a reason to think a, a team that's built this car will absolutely screw up their next upgrade package. So that's just going to be a step too far, in my opinion. But it is going to be, I guess, a character building year for them, as I think Toto Wolff described it. And we shouldn't doubt that they will then be here next year because it's unusual for them to get their maths wrong so badly that this car needs to go in the bin, right? Like they will figure out how this car works. They will probably win races by the end of the year, maybe even before mid-season break. I don't think that's too unusual. And I mean in regular circumstances, not like a lucky win or anything like that. And then next year, we should all be fearful of Mercedes again. I think it's fair to say, because this is a team that knows how to win. They've won across regulation changes. They are handicapped this year because of the budget cap, for example. Also, they're developing the least of any team. We shouldn't forget that sliding scale and aerodynamic development that's come in in the last uh, 18 months, in fact. So they've got the least resource to fix the problems they found. They will get there. It's just going to take them more time. But 
I think the question is, it was put to me the other day, it's not a matter of whether they can win the championship. It's a matter of what effect they're going to have on the championship battle because they are in amongst it with Red Bull and Ferrari. They could decide who's going to win the championship. Yeah, it's liken it a lot to McLaren in the uh, in the early kind of tens of you know twenty ten twenty twelve. They never mm. looked like they were really going to win a championship realistically, but they were in in the fight and deciding whether or not it was Red Bull or Ferrari. So certain certain symmetry there as well with the, with the Mercedes engine as well. So that's that's going to be in- interesting to see as well. Yeah, I, I I'm a little bit disappointed with Mercedes this year because. I know Ferrari switched off their development very early, but if you really mm-hmm. look at the development that Mercedes have brought to that car, they did, vir- did virtually nothing in 2020, did very little in 2021. They should be more prepared than anyone. You look at, at what Haas have done, and I know they're getting help from Ferrari now yeah. and, uh, with you know having their own base in Maranello and, and everything like that and all the uh, you know <laughs> the questions uh, around that. But even so, what Haas have done, what Alfa Romeo have done around this regulation set, and what what Ferrari have done, Mercedes have had just as much an opportunity. And I, I just for me, I just feel that maybe they've they've had their day and they they might now be kind of dropping into that that kind of that mid-table occasional race win obscurity and it's going to be a bit of a long way back for them it's uh, I, I don't I'm not convinced 100% on that but I, I'm not expecting them to come back and win the championship now whereas at the start of the season I thought this is this is Mercedes everything they've got has built up to this they're not going to take their eye off the ball you know, Red Bull are going to be third in the Constructors' Championship with an uncompetitive car. It's going to be McLaren fighting Red Bull for third. You know, that was kind of what I was expecting yeah, to yes. see with a, with Mercedes and Ferrari out front. But uh, but no, it's just I'm very disappointed in in the way that Mercedes' season has started. But uh, it's going to be interesting to find yeah. out on that. But uh, it's interesting. Just on that, I, I sort of think as you're you're speaking, you're right because if I was going to pick a team last year, for example, that was going to trip up this year, I would have picked. And I probably did if you go back and read something or listen to something. Thing I said, and I hope no one ever finds it, but I would have picked Red Bull <laughs> Racing because yeah. it seemed like they were pushing harder for longer. It seemed like they were bringing updates later in the season for longer, and it seemed uh, very much parallel to Ferrari and McLaren, in fact, at the end of 2008 when they were pushing hard for that title. Uh, and then, of course, they were both kind of nowhere in 2009, although McLaren recovered by mid-season, I think it was. But it seems absolutely it's Mercedes the case. And I can't help but think, back, actually, in fact, back to the start of last season when Mercedes' car was also off the pace. Admittedly, they won enough races early on, largely because Red Bull wasn't executing at 100%. Mm. But I can't help but wonder the work they needed to put into fixing that car detracted from this year's car, even though it seemed like they did switch off development early enough, although I think they were still working a little bit more behind the scenes than they wanted to let on. Just the effort required to update that car to work and that that upgrade package came in Silverstone, I think, from memory, so around about halfway in the year, just attracted from even having, you know, 10 or 15%, 20% of your workforce looking into the future because they really wanted to beat Red Bull Racing. So I think perversely, actually, some of the damage may have, in fact, been done at the start of last year rather than the end of it, and that may be where they've come off. And, And I think you're right as well to say that eras do end, right? Like this might be, we don't know, we won't know till we get to next year or the year after really, the end of the Mercedes era because, you know, the structures are in place, the culture is there and I don't necessarily think it will be but people get tired, right? Like you've been working for eight years, a lot of them much longer than that realistically and eventually you move on, people decide they don't want to work in Formula One anymore, they take up roles in other teams, the team does break up even if we're talking of hundreds of hundreds of people so it never really falls apart. It can happen. I mean, McLaren's been nowhere for ages. So is Ferrari. And there's no excuses for some of these teams. So uh, it, qu- it could well be. 
Yeah, tell me about it. The, the pain is still real for uh, for McLaren as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was really hoping this year would be regular race wins, but it doesn't look like that's mm. going to be the case. But uh, on on McLaren, how how do you see their their season panning out and how they've started and 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 how you rate their drivers and especially the, the slightly older of the two drivers? I'm sure there's a little bit more support for him than <laughs> than uh, Lando Norris. But yeah, how how are you, how do you see McLaren's season panning out? Yeah, it's probably the only race, the Australian Grand Prix, where all the orange in the crowd is not for Max Verstappen. I think it's probably an unusual <laughs> difference down here. Yeah, it's been interesting, McLaren. You know, I, like a lot of people, I suspect, was very pessimistic after Bahrain because, I mean, they were the slowest car at the end of the race. We know the reasons for it, the brake duct problems, the miscalculations with cooling. And uh, realistically, they were also fundamentally three full test days considering they couldn't. Andrea Seidel really broke it down quite effectively in Australia. sort of said there are three reasons why they look like they're rebounding. One is that they... They've now kind of caught up on that lack of test mileage because they've had three Grand Prix distances plus all the practice sessions associated with it with both cars. So that's quite effective. They brought some upgrades, although obviously not a lot because the big upgrades take quite a while. And then, of course, the track has suited them, both Australia and even Saudi Arabia before it. It's definitely not where they should be. We all were hoping after the Barcelona test, even as, as late as that, that this team would be contending for regular wins, as you said. And the trajectory of the last few years has been so strong. You know, there's a good reason to bet that they would be there. And on top of that, of course, they got Lando Norris, who last year felt like he really arrived in Formula One. You know, some great drives there. And first half of the season in particular, absolutely dominated Daniel Ricciardo. And we know how good Daniel Ricciardo is. We know he had problems with the car, but nonetheless, that takes nothing away from how well Norris was doing. And on top of that, this year with the new car, it does look like Daniel Cardo is doing a lot better. You know, I was really uh, buoyed by his pace in Australia relative to Norris. He was There was pretty much nothing between them for the entire race. Even in Saudi Arabia, he was pretty close. And, and, you know, Bahrain was a bit of an unusual race, so we can kind of discount that, especially considering he was just recovering from COVID. So it does weirdly feel like the drivers are in position now after having one of them out, but the car's aerodynamics are not. I think similar to Mercedes, by the end of the year, if they're confident that their fundamental design is good, and unfortunately, it's not really a problem that they have, it's just a lack of downforce, which does take time to just build up naturally. I think by the end of the year, they'll be they'll be close. They'll be at a minimum at the head of the midfield. I think that's definitely got to be their aim anyway, maybe contending with Mercedes. Their aim, unfortunately, has been pushed out of year though, right? Like we're talking about titles this year or at least regular race wins. It's now 2023. Hmm. They'll have their new wind tunnel online next year as well. That won't be felt probably for another year as well. But I don't feel we should be too disheartened that it seems like the trajectory has gone off the boil. I think it's it's plateaued a little bit, but there are reasons to think it will get back on track. But it is going to be a high-pressure year for them because if they don't show signs of progress, that's going to cost them a lot of internal faith considering how well they've been doing in the last few years. And you know, we all want to see McLaren doing well. I mean, it's a team that, that feels like it's in a good place now, aside from the car, of course, and it is good. I mean, it's a heritage team. It's good when they do well. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. Yes, uh, obviously, uh, with my, my, my very partisan support for McLaren as well, I, I want to see <laughs> yeah. up, there, up there winning races, and I'm still I'm still hurting from uh, from Monza when Gasly won, and I'm still oh. still hurting from Sochi last year as well. But uh, the Italian <laughs> Grand Prix, at least, was uh, was something something to celebrate uh, in a big way. But because uh, the speaking of Italian, the other Italian team on the grid, the Alfa Romeo, are a team that I have been very uh very meh about for a good few years yeah. and and I, I i i regularly uh get given alfa romeo to speak about on the grid talk podcast and i'm just like really again <laughs> you're giving me alfa romeo again but this year i'm really excited about alfa romeo new driver lineup they seem to be made they seem to have made a decent car that's capable of, of scoring points and uh do you have a similar support to ferrari as you do for alfa romeo or are they just the the other team 
Yes, well, I mean, don't forget, Alfa Romeo would love to tell you that they're Italian, but in fact, they're of course Swiss. They're the Sauber team true, to me. Yeah. It's just the yeah. it's just the wrapping on the car is Alfa Romeo, still run by Sauber. And look, I, it is an interesting one because for so many years they've kind of have been a little bit the anonymous team on the grid, haven't they? They almost have been in a sense making up the numbers, and uh, it's been great, of course, to have Kimi Räikkönen on the grid because that gives him a bit of notoriety and had higher hopes for Antonio Giovinazzi, but he didn't really make it work in the end. But a lot of the problems, you know, they've been reeling really from that that time a couple of years ago when they almost went bankrupt. They ended up being bought out. There was some management unhappiness in the last couple of years. A lot of that settled down. And so we're now seeing the team, uh, I think, reverting to actually where they belong, which is always where Sauber's been really just a solid midfield team. They've got great facilities from their time working with BMW, good wind tunnel. The only thing they've really been lacking was simulator stuff, but that's being upgraded now too. It's all coming together. And so we shouldn't be surprised that they do start to take these steps forward. I mean, theoretically, in my opinion, there really shouldn't be any backmarkers in Formula 1 anymore because they're all pretty well equipped now. The budget cap should help that. We are really seeing Sauber revert to that midfield position. And in Valtteri Bottas, I think they've got a great leader. You know, I think, unfortunately, being paired with Lewis Hamilton for so many years has unfairly dented his reputation because he is extremely quick in qualifying. And this is a guy who won a lot of pole positions off Lewis Hamilton, not by any means a majority. But when you talk about Lewis Hamilton being the most prolific pole scorer in Formula 1, to score even as many as Valtteri did is uh, is incredibly impressive, in my opinion. And, okay, he's never been as sharp in wheel-to-wheel combat, but he's a decent racer. And I think he will improve in that field knowing that he is the leader, knowing that he has got that sort of team behind him in a way that he didn't at Mercedes, not that Mercedes wasn't behind him, but obviously he formed that second driver role sooner rather than later once he got there. And I think that setup is really good. You know, I, I don't think Joe Guan Yu should be discounted too much either. I think he's he's decent. I don't think he is by any means. I'm sure we'll talk about this later on. The F2 driver who should have been in Formula 1 from last season's <laughs> F2 crop, but... You know, he he's by no means slow. He's not just a pay driver. You know, he's good enough there. And he's had some great drives already this season, in fact. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about Alfa Romeo. And it is great, again, to go back to calling them Sauber. This is a little bit of a historic team. They've been around for ages. Mm. They've been one of the, the pluckiest teams on the grid. And it, I'm really hopeful that they will just be regular point scorers. Yeah, Sauber as a team have been involved, if you think of all their iterations as BMW, Sauber, under Alfa Romeo, they've been involved mm-hmm. in Formula 1 for well over a third of the complete um, yeah. time the championship has been around. So people do forget, I remember when they came in, and so that just makes me feel old when I think I've watched over a third of all <laughs> Grand Prix live. That does make me realise just how, how how fast time is going on. I've probably seen uh, I've probably seen races from every season of Formula 1 like through historic channels and things now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a time. I'm certainly, certainly getting on. But yeah, it's, it's good to see Salva, like you say, getting back to that. I think my favourite Salva era was when uh, Perez was was challenging mm. to win odd races here and there and uh, had, to, had to give it away because he had a Ferrari engine, allegedly, as yeah. well. So I'll never forget that race. Well, I can't remember the year. Was it 2012 when he was racing Fernando Alonso for victory in Malaysia? I was it was there around for that, that race. time. Yeah, I think, yeah. Around 2012, I think. Mm. And I was gutted when he went wide on the second to last lap, I think it was. Because, yeah, I mean, he's a deserved race winner. I really hope he finds success at Red Bull now. But it was so exciting to watch him as a young guy. Yeah, just the, the, the communication over the radio. Don't mess it up, Checo. Next corner, <laughs> lock up. It's almost like it was code. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, you, you mentioned about, uh, about Guan Yuzhou and, and not being the F2 driver to make it to Formula One. I can't think who you could possibly be uh, be mentioning. So enlighten <laughs> us, who should have been in Formula One ahead of Guan Yuzhou? Or Joe Guan Yu, sorry. 
Yeah, it's, of course, Oscar Piastri, my great compatriot. Grew up only a few kilometres from where I speak to you today. Yes. Uh, he's, yeah, He. I mean, look, he's he's got all the accolades, doesn't he? You know, he's won junior title, three junior titles in a row, two of them in his debut year. I think that's the most impressive part of that, necessarily, that they were, well, I mean, I guess if you win more than one in a row, necessarily some of them are going to be debuts, aren't they? So I guess that sort of self-defeats. But, mm. yeah, see, though the fact that he sort of broke into F2, won on debut, is really impressive. I, I was speaking to Lauren Rossi in, in Alpine during the week and he spoke about how what he impresses him most because, you know, there's a lot of hype around him. We know he's very quick. You know, he's a winner. What impresses him most, he just says he's such an intelligent guy. Like the questions he asks of the team are questions that no one with his inexperience should be asking. It's the questions that really mature drivers should be asking. And he's so ready to try and put that that knowledge and that understanding and that curiosity to, to real work by developing a Formula One car, developing himself as a Formula One driver. There's no question he should be in Formula One. I mean, I'm of the opinion that generally speaking, the winner of F2 should be able to find a way into Formula One. I think, you know, with only 20 seats and there is a weirdly low turnover of drivers in Formula One, I think compared to a lot of other categories, it's not always possible. We know that. I think one or two more teams would help that quite a bit. Uh, it, it's always a shame when when the winner doesn't break in. But I think even a year on the sidelines won't do him any harm. I think that he'll learn a lot as a, as a reserve driver for Alpine. And they are really keen on him. I think that's the, the thing I really took away from, from speaking to people this weekend in Australia is that it's not sort of like they, you know, miss their chance to get him somewhere else or, you know, they just waiting for the opportunity. The reason he's on the reserve list and hasn't been sort of farmed out to anyone yet is because Alpine are absolutely dead set certain he is their future. You know, is what he said, is that that Laurent Rossi said, was that this is the, you know, he didn't, I don't think he necessarily said the next world champion because I'm sure he'd love to see Fernando or Esteban if they have the chance before then, but he will be a world champion for Alpine, is what he said. They are certain that he is the future and a future champion of Formula One. I think they will end up putting him somewhere else in the next few years because I think Fernando Alonso, Fernando Alonso said he wants to stay, hasn't he? And, you know, he's performing pretty well. I can't imagine a situation Alpine says uh, so long, Fernando Alonso. But there will be a couple of places opening up further down the grid. I think he'll probably end up at a, an Aston or a Williams, for example, for a year or two. And then probably Fernando Alonso, maybe Esteban Ocon. But I think Fernando, as you better bet, will make way for one of those great young drivers we were saying at the start of the, the podcast, one of the great young drivers who will be the future of Formula One. And I can't wait to see how he goes. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult situation. They they've got themselves in with Esteban Ocon on that massive long contract, and mm -hmm. Fernando Alonso being Fernando Alonso. I mean, just just this weekend was was you know his greatest ever race. Apparently, you know, as, yeah. as, he, as he likes yes. to say every week. What a pole! Uh, what a one! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what have won it twice? Yeah. No, it's yeah. Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, me personally, if I'm if I'm in in the Alpine car. I'm looking at potentially replacing Fernando Alonso because he is their future and I don't want to run the risk of him looking and, you know, getting getting green eyes at someone else and, and oh, well, Red Bull have offered me a contract and, you know, mm. they're winning races. They, they need to get him in that team like like McLaren have done with Lando Norris and, and make him part of that team. And But at the moment, he's just basically, they've just talent blocked him and he's he's just on this long-term contract and not racing. And uh, it just worries me a little bit. Uh, when, when you look at previous F2 champions or, or junior series champions who didn't get into F1 at the, straight away, you, straight away, you, you look at Davide Valsecchi, never even made it to Formula mm. One. Jolien Palmer had a year out and then came into Formula One and, you know, very underwhelming. And, and Stoffel van Dorn had a year out after winning the championship. And again, 
you know, talented driver, does great things in Formula E, but has never really cut it at Formula One level, which is which is a shame. Apart from, ironically, his debut, where he did a brilliant job. Yes. But uh, but yeah. it's, it just worries me that this this talent is just being stifled, and it, it could be you know Australia's first world champion since well in my lifetime, which we've already discussed yeah. for quite a quite a long time. So it's <laughs> it, we just I just really want to see him on the grid and and in a competitive car and and actually getting somewhere. But let's say loading him out, I'm not sure that's that. For the, the right thing. I mean, if it's me, I'm putting him in over Fernando Alonso, or I wouldn't. I, I personally wouldn't have offered Ock on that long contract. But uh, <laughs> but that's that's just me. Hopefully, we'll see him on the grid next year, and hopefully, we'll see him push pushing up and getting points and and showing everyone what a what a great talent he is. But uh, back to this season then. So predictions for the season. I know you have to be staunchly unbiased in your role, but uh, if you could give us a give us a prediction on what you think is going to happen for the, for the rest of the season, I think we, we can probably pretty much guess who you think is going to win. But uh, Who's going to win the championship, and um, are there going to be any surprise surprise winners? Yeah, look, I, I, it's of course very difficult to say only three races in, but on the evidence of what we've seen in three races, I can't go past Charles Leclerc at the moment. I can't imagine a situation in which he breaks under the pressure. I think he's weirdly, despite Ferrari obviously not being in championship contention for the last few years for as long as he's been there, he's kind of already subjected himself to obviously disappointment racing for Ferrari for the last couple of years, but all of the the pressures that come with racing for Ferrari for being in winning contention and not winning, I think he's actually kind of forged himself in those problems and those situations already. So I can't imagine a situation which we get to the end of the year, like a crunch moment and he kind of folds or collapses on himself. I may be proved wrong, but I don't think that's going to happen to him. And uh, you know, as much as Ferrari may not have the dominant car for the rest of the year, and the car's not necessarily dominant now, but it is just so easy to set up and so workable that it means that they're always going to be in contention when Red Bull sometimes isn't. I think that they've, I mean, he's already got a pretty good points buffer now. I mean, if he if he finishes second to Max Verstappen, it's still going to take him until July, I think it is, for Max Verstappen to catch up. It's a long time. I just can't imagine a situation in which... He doesn't win it, which sounds terrible to say three races in, doesn't it? And I don't want to put that pressure on him either. But the signs we've seen from three races, that is my caveat. That's my asterisk that based on three races, this is Ferrari's championship. I think Max Verstappen will, of course, be close because the kind of race we saw in Australia was, I would say, Hamilton-esque or Verstappen-esque. It was absolute domination. And Verstappen will have some of those this year once Red Bull figures out its reliability problem, certainly, and, and then brings some more upgrades to the car. But... I, I'm yet to see anything to make me doubt that rock solid nature of the Ferrari Leclerc combination. I think science as well. I mean, I, I also think Perry is going to be a great, uh, I want to say wingman, but let's say second driver. No, that's somehow even worse, isn't it? Other driver <laughs> in the team, uh, as much as Carlos science is. And I think science, once he gets up to speed, he has a little bit more qualifying pace, in my opinion, than, than Sergio Perez. And that may end up making a little bit of a difference to that fight as well. But I mean, my tip is for, for Charles Leclerc to win this title against Max Verstappen, but I really do hope Sainz can get in the mix and it'd be great to see Perez get in the mix as well. I'd love to see more wins for those two drivers because they absolutely deserve it. Can you see anyone from outside of those teams winning races or is that too far to go? I think I think Mercedes will, which means I think we'll see George Russell's first victory. I'm really pleased to think that we will, uh, of course, because he's a guy who absolutely deserves it. And I do think, you know, I, we shouldn't discount McLaren for getting the odd win. I hope by the end of the year they will be sort of just, 
you know, on that edge of the of the top, the, the front runners. And they, they, I mean, they kind of were in Australia, but they're still a bit too far behind, realistically, about a second a lap. I think they'll get closer over the course of the year. And we might see a Norris or Ricardo win at a track that is favourable towards the end of the year. I'm trying to think what's near the end of the calendar now. Uh, Brazil might suit them, for example. Maybe not so much Austin, although part of them will. There'll be tracks that'll suit them towards the end of the year. And then, I mean, it does feel like over the last couple of years, doesn't it, that we've had at least one absolutely random winner over the course of the season, hasn't it? Like whether it's Pierre Gasly or Esteban Ocon last year. Who would you pick out of them, though? You know, I, I, I think Alpine, I mean, they're not so random now, right? They've won last year. They're kind of contending there. Love to see Fernando Alonso win another race. I mean, of course, I'd love to see him even try and win a championship. So I wouldn't be surprised to see. Maybe the prediction is maybe we get four or five teams that could win a race this year. I can't even remember the last time that happened. Was it, it would have been 2012 that we would have had that many teams win a race, maybe? Well, I think, I mean, I, mean I, I feel like if it was going to happen, it could be this year. Well, we had uh, we had four last year, didn't we? I think four teams were set Alpine, McLaren, Red Bull, Mercedes. Of course we would have, yeah. What a stupid so statistic. This is why I always do my research. Four. I don't know. My best statistics are not on podcasts. There yeah, that's, that's four. So, I mean, five, yeah, would be would yes, be epic. Five would be great. Let's say I five. Yeah. Do not remember the last time we had five five Grand Prix winners in a season. Yes. So, yeah, that, that uh, five Grand Prix teams winning in a season, that, mm. that would be brilliant. So uh, finally, who be super negative now? Who uh, do you think Oscar Piastri should be targeting, and who's likely to drop out of Formula One at the end of the season? You say there's not a lot of movement if, normally, yeah. but uh, but yeah, yes, you're right. And I, I think there will be some this year, though not still not heaps. I think that if you were Oscar's management, if you were Mark Webber, God bless him, or Alpine, of course, uh, you'd. Be re- you well. This is the thing. I, I'm undecided, but you'd be chatting to Williams and Aston Martin logically enough. You'd be chatting to them over Sebastian Vettel's seat because I just can't imagine. It pains me to say Sebastian Vettel continuing next season because, I mean, that car is just rubbish, isn't it? So far this year, anyway. <laughs> they're adamant. They're adamant. There's pace in there once they figure it out, and they might be right. But I mean, they had a dreadful weekend in Melbourne, didn't they? So maybe you don't want that. Williams, on the other hand, while they are arguably the slowest car in the field. It seems much more solid. I mean, what Alex Elbin was able to achieve, and I know Lance Stroll got close, but still wasn't able to do it at the end of the day. What Alex Elbin was able to achieve shows not only that he's very good as a driver, we can't forget that, but that the car's really a stable base. And I think that's that's good news for that team's future for development in the next few years. And so you'd be talking to one of them. I'm not convinced which one you'd prefer. I don't know which one Oscar would prefer to get into. You, you would you would probably say for his development, Williams, because let's say Alex Albon's going to stay the next year, which I think is probably likely. He's a known quantity. He's very quick. We know that. He'll have had experience at several different teams. He has experience, of course, with, with Red Bull, which is a championship contending, championship winning team. I think that would be great for his development. It also seems like the right atmosphere, that team. I think the management they've set up there is really good. They've obviously got a lot of experience working with with young junior drivers too, so that would be really good for him. Whereas Aston Martin, you know, theoretically they may have more potential, but it just doesn't seem like the place to be at the moment. It seems no. like um, it just doesn't seem like the right situation. Maybe they everything does come good at the end of the year. Maybe so good that Sebastian Vettel stays, but I think that's unlikely. And maybe you do want to put him there, but against Lance Stroll, who who I do rate is decently quick. I don't think he's. He deserves every joke made about him. Maybe some of them, not all of them. He's just not the bar. He's not the same bar against you'd you'd measure a, against which you'd measure a young driver. So, on balance, I'd probably say Williams if they were open to the deal. I'm not sure that they are, but if you're going to place him anywhere, I guess I'd probably pick Williams. 
Yeah, maybe it could could come in with an engine deal or something with uh, with Renault. That's Potentially, been, been yeah. Rumored uh, return to the Williams Renault because it went so well last time. But <laughs> I, I, I agree with what you say about Lance Stroll, but uh, I, I I do maintain that you know drivers of every generation are better than the previous. So I, I got into a lot of trouble mm-hmm. by saying that Lance Stroll is better than James Hunt once, and uh, and. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> To I which can the, imagine you would. To, to which the guest on on the show there, uh, which is Richard Reddy from Miss Apex, then said, "Yeah, I also think Lance Stroll is better than Senna." Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's. Uh, I didn't get any emails well, about that, yeah. which I was surprised about. Yeah. So. But yeah, I'm not going to touch that one. No, I don't blame you. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'd quite go that far. But uh, definitely from every generation is different. Every generation is better prepared. And Mm -hmm. yes, he wouldn't be in Formula 1 if he wasn't quick. But he was given every opportunity, like Latifi, to to be in in that car. He'd never had any pressure to to prove himself. But yeah, absolutely. He is a a quick driver now, but he still has those moments. But yeah, so that's, that's all we've got for you for today. You can follow us on F1 Chronicle at F1 Chronicle on Twitter and if you want to follow me if you're crazy then you can follow me at Tom Horrocks F1 Michael where can people follow you and is there anything else you'd like to plug? Oh look if you go and find me on uh, the internet I guess on Twitter you can go and find my website as well Uh, you can find all the different stuff I'm doing there I need need to upset that website uh, now that I've said that but you can see the various things I'm doing there uh, yeah and find the the podcast you probably search my name actually on your podcast app and you probably find some stuff on there I've never tried it before mind you but give it a go let me know what happens Uh, everyone Googles themselves don't lie yeah Well, thank you very much. We will be back this Saturday with our preview of the Emilia Magna Grand Prix in Imola, uh, which, and we look forward to seeing you all then. So until then, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>